we're going to get ready to jump straight in for what we have, Romans 10, and uh, coming off of Romans 9, we had a lot of conversations, uh, turn to your neighbor and say, a lot, all right, so, uh, and so we had a lot of conversations coming off of Romans 9, a lot of them were really, really good, and, and here's the one thing that I think we can all grab a hold of, one reality that I think we can all grab a hold of, God is bigger than we thought he was. God is bigger than we thought he was. God is more involved in the intricate details of life than maybe we thought he was, all right? And so coming off of Romans 9, <clears throat> here's the one thing that we, there, the one word that you have to believe, regardless of what you, like as some people are wrestling through what we got out of Romans 9 last month, regardless of how you land on a number of those conversations, here's one word you have to believe, and if you don't, then you just need to go back to your Bible and really work hard on trying to make sure you grab a hold of it. And it's this one word called sovereignty. Everything that exists, exists because God told it to exist. And nothing exists outside of God telling it to exist. And so the tension we dealt with last month and, and we dealt with in the weeks following last month, and I've been in a lot of conversations after last month, is grappling out this reality that God's sovereignty plays some, say some, at, at minimum it plays some role in your salvation. Now, what we grappled out last month was that it played the role of your salvation, um, and that's not necessarily what we're going to deal with tonight. However, we have to understand how Paul wrote these letters uh, to the Romans, how he's dealing with the Romans. We have to understand, again, uh, putting chapters and verses into books is a relatively new idea, all right? So when Paul wrote it, he wasn't like chapter 10. And then started writing, all right? We put those in there so we could find stuff easier, okay? Paul, Paul wasn't like, all right, let's stop our thought here and let's continue. When you read this, if you look at it from 5, in particular from 5 all the way through 10, this is one fluid thought that Paul is dealing with. And so as we've been unpacking these verses and unpacking these texts and unpacking, unpacking what Romans says, we're doing so, but we need to do it, make sure we do it with an understanding that Paul wasn't stopping and starting his thoughts thoughts. He was giving us a fluid, consistent string of understanding as to how we're supposed to see God and how seeing God that way is supposed to impact us. All right. So turn to your neighbor and say impact. All right. So, all right. I'm making sure you're all with us. Y'all are a little quiet tonight. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. All right. And so <clears throat> let's jump in. We'll pray and then we'll get in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, God, your word does a better job reading us than we do reading it. So I pray that you reveal to us the truth that is found in your word. I pray that these won't be words on paper, but it would be life that gives us substance uh, and that we would see you in ways we haven't seen you before. We thank you tonight and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. So it is an undeniable truth that God is sovereign in all things, even salvation. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 10. Let's do it. Brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. All right, who is them? The Jews. All right, so he's saying, my heart's desire is that the Jewish people would be saved. All right, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pause there for a second as we unpack this. So what is, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that the Jews have a desire for righteousness. They're just doing it without knowledge. In other words, the, they actually want the right thing. They're just going about it the wrong way. They have a desire to do the right things. Matter of fact, when we look at this idea that that they're they're ignorant of the righteousness of God because they're trying to establish righteousness on their own, right? And we look at them and go, what a bunch of fools, until we look in the mirror. Because how many of us have pulled away from God's grace only to try to be good enough to obtain God, right? Right? How many of us have pulled away from, man, God's so good, and in shame, we hid from God knowing that God knew right where to find us. Man, I've been messing that up. Man, I haven't got that under control just yet. I haven't been doing this right. I, man, I'm still dealing with this thing. God don't want nothing to do with me. I'm just going to quit going to church. And it's like, you think that your credentials make you worthy? There is no credential that makes you worthy. And so he's saying that the Jews are trying to pursue this all on their own. They're trying to to get there. But I think it's important that we understand who the Jews were, even the Pharisees that he's talking about right now. We're talking about zealous defenders, right, and preservers of the word of God. And we're standing in unity against a polytheistic culture of the Gentiles at the time. In other words, we've got a bunch of religious people that when when we say religious people, we think of it through the church that hurt us a year and a half ago or 10 years ago. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people that gave their life to protect the Old Testament. They spent their whole life memorizing the Old Testament. I mean, they were preserved. They thought they were doing the right thing because in this time, right, particularly in Rome, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a culture and a group of people who thought that God isn't the God. There's all these gods. And let's just worship all of these gods and surely we'll nail one of them down, right? And so what are they doing? They're worshiping all of these gods. Well, what are the, 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 relig- what are the Jews doing during this time frame? They're trying to protect and preserve the reality that the God of Israel is God. And there is no other God other than the God of Israel. What they failed to see, and we're going to unpack it in a few minutes, is they failed to see that Jesus himself was a representative and a part of the God of Israel. That's where they missed it. They knew what the Bible said. Listen to me, but they didn't know what the Bible was saying. I'm going to say it again. They knew what the Bible said. They knew how to read the words on the paper and memorize it. They even let it be a reality to them that would dictate their behavior. They knew what it said, but listen, they didn't know what it was trying to say. They knew what the words were. They didn't know what the words meant. And if there's ever been a relative term to, I believe, how Christians are in the 21st century, it is they know what the Bible says, but they do not know what the Bible is saying. And if you want proof, go to Instagram right now, and I promise you, one of your favorite church friends has posted some ridiculous scripture from Jeremiah that has nothing to do with them. Because they know what it says, but they don't know what it's saying. That part of the Bible totally applies to me. No, it doesn't. That's Ezekiel. It doesn't, listen, it couldn't apply to you less, honey. Right? Again, we know what it says, 
but do we know what it's saying? And that's why we, that's why we do expositions, exegetical breakdowns. That's why we take time, we move through passages, because we need to expose what the Bible is saying, because it's one thing to know the words, but it's another thing to know the truth. And so that's what we, we are going to take from this, right? So that a zeal for God, but they were ignorant, uh, or they, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They they knew it said that they needed to be righteous, but failed to see that they could be and would need one greater to be righteous for them. So what did, what did it expose to them? The reality is they could see that righteousness was necessary. They could not see that they needed someone to get them where they could not go themselves. And listen to me. Let us not make the same mistakes as the Jewish people in that time. Let us not make the same mistakes as the Pharisees as to believe we could be good enough that we would not need Jesus. Don't let us make the same mistake that they made, that we could follow the law well enough that we did not need the King of Kings. And I believe none of us would sit here and be like, no, I totally believe that. But if we were to look at how we approach God, we approach it through the lens of I've got to do good enough. I've got to be good enough. I've got to hit that checklist. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Anybody ever, you knew you were killing it that week, and you're like, me and God are like, we ain't never been closer, man. I read my Bible every morning this week. I prayed 30 minutes every day this week. You know what I mean? I've been trying to do this for 10 years, and we finally got here. The problem is Monday's coming again, right? And you woke late for that work that day, right? And so, and so. What happens when on that week you're killing it, you're like, oh, man, we're doing this. We got it. Me and God have never been closer, right? We're like peanut butter and jelly. We just go good with everything. Like, come on, like, right? And then the next week you're not killing it. And because you, because you were so close to God because of how you were doing, that means when you're not doing well, what are you? Far from God. And we don't recognize that there's a direct correlation between feeling good about how well we're doing, that is directly connected to how far from God we feel when we're not doing well. And listen to me, you're no, you're no closer to God when you're killing it, and you're no farther from God when you're not. Because it's not about you, it's about grace. It's about faith. It's about a righteousness that doesn't come from our works, but comes from what Jesus gave us on the cross. And that should be a moment of celebration for every Christian because, listen to me, it's not about how good you can do. Because, again, when we're doing great, we feel great. But when we're not, God, I just don't even know. I just, I feel so terrible. Listen, it's a righteousness that's been afforded to us through faith. And so we have this people that are, they have zeal without knowledge, Right? They want to do the right thing, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does it mean that he's the end of the law? It means it's no longer the law that makes you righteous. He finished that so that now your righteousness could come from him. And so let me help you unpack that. How many of you have ever messed up before? You are now disqualified for your own righteousness. You, one mess up, that's it. I had more than one today. Me and Nate went and played golf. 
And there is nothing that tests how much you love God than a golf course. I'm telling you right now. I, I told him, plug your ears, bro. Just, right? So I'm like, I, I messed up today. You know what I mean? I'm disqualified for all eternity of my own self-righteousness because of one thing that happened today. And it didn't need to happen today because it happened 20-something. Like, in other words, I've needed it the whole time, Right? Jesus came to do what we couldn't do on our own. And that should muster up a a passionate zeal for him because he's done something for us. So let's keep on going. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Right? So let's, let's break this down for a second because this matters. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, the righteousness from the law was an achievement. If you, so for those, for the Jewish culture, for those Jewish people that were making a sacrifice for their sins, right, there was a pursuit after getting the law right, which is why they only ate certain food. They did, like, all the festivals, all the, going to the temple, everything. Like, man, they fulfilled, they were doing their best to fulfill it. They were doing everything they could. And he's saying for those that could live by following the law, right, for those that were in the commandments, for those that could follow it, that was the pursuit is what they were going to live by, right? So the righteousness from the law was an achievement for those that were trying to live by it. The problem is, A, it's exclusive, and B, it's really unobtainable. In other words, they never could get there, right? And I love what the Greek's exposition commentary says this. It says, to keep the law of God and live by doing so was the natural aim and hope of a true Israelite. Only in this case, The law was not a collection of statutes, but a revelation of God's character and will. And I want you to grab a hold of this. We'll break it down in a second. It wasn't a collection of statutes. In other words, it wasn't a list of rules to be followed, right? It was a revelation of God's character and will. And he who sought to keep it did so not alone, but in conscious dependence on God, whose grace was shown above all things else by his gift of such a revelation. Now that was written about 600 years ago, so let me help you out. So you're like, oh, thank you, right? (laughs) What he's saying here is this, that the law that was given wasn't given as a list of rules to be followed, right? The law was given to show us that God has a desire for righteousness. Listen to me. And that his righteousness, that righteousness with God is absolutely necessary to be close to him. In other words, if you are unrighteous, you can't be close to God. The whole reason the law exists is to show you, you can't cut it. You can't do it. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. It is a mirror that reflects to you all the areas that you're getting it wrong. Praise God. It is a constant reminder that God has a desire, that God has a character, that God has a code, that God has values, and righteousness is part of that character. Righteousness is part of that code. Righteousness is part of those values, and we've all screwed it up, therefore we have no right to be close to him. That's what the law is made to do. And Jesus came, listen to me, Jesus came because you can't fulfill it. He came to fulfill it for you. 
the law, the, the reality that a law needs to be followed, that God's law needs to be followed, that we can't follow it, and that Jesus followed it for us, is a revelation that if you can see that, God's the only reason you can see it. God graced you with the ability to see your own faults and failures. How many of you know an atheist right now, or at least someone that claims that they don't believe in God, right? There is no concept within them that desires to follow God's law because there has been no revelation for them for the need that it be followed. There's no concept within them that they need to follow God's law because there's been no revelation for them that it needs to be followed. In other words, the reality that God's law needs to be followed requires the grace of God to even open your eyes to that. It's God's grace you know that you're failing at meeting the standard, and it's God's grace that gets you up to a standard you could not meet on your own. So listen to me, it took God for you to even realize you needed God. You didn't figure that out on your own. He opened your eyes to the present reality that you need him and then gave you what you couldn't obtain because you're not good enough. And then when you weren't good enough, gave it to you anyways and then saw that you were going to mess up after he gave it to you and continued to give you something you couldn't earn. That's what we're talking about, the revelation of grace. The mere fact that you know you need God is because God told you and opened your eyes to it. What a reality. And that's what Romans 10 is saying. So Moses, yeah, sure. If you can try to live by it, go for it. But most of us can't. Picking up in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Let me help you out with what's being communicated here, verses 6 and 7. They're saying that, that faith is not obtainable, uh, or that Christ is not obtainable by faith, or sorry, Christ is obtainable only by faith, not by sight. Now, this is what Paul is saying to the Jews in particular. So let's look at it here. I want to explain to you what you're reading, because everything in the Bible matters, so we don't skip it just because it's weird, all right? Because we're saying, like, the abyss, and descending, and ascending, and I feel like, you know, like, no, like so let's, let me help you with what uh, Paul is saying here. When he says, to bring Christ down, what he means is that the Jews were looking for an ascending Messiah to take control of his kingdom. So what he was saying is we don't look to bring Christ down. In other words, we don't look for Jesus who, if, if he really is the Messiah, keep in mind the Jews did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. So they're saying we don't look for Jesus to come down and be with us just so that you can say he really is the Messiah. He's the Messiah because he says he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah because he's the son of God. He's the Messiah because he paid the price. He's the Messiah because who he says he is. We're not looking for him to prove himself to us. We're looking to put our faith in him. So we're saying we're not looking for him to come down and walk this earth the same way. They're saying we're also not looking for him to ascend. What they're saying is we're not looking for him to prove that he's come out of the grave again and dwell amongst us. 
And so what Paul is communicating to the Jews in this current moment, in these two verses right here, is the Jews are looking for Jesus to show up and be among them. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom isn't something I'm building on this earth. My kingdom is something I'm building that goes beyond this earth. And so the Jews are saying, we're looking for a king that's going to come rule and reign and have a land and have all these things. And he's saying, we're not looking for the king that's going to uh, descend from heaven. We're not looking for the king that's going to ascend from the depths. We're, we're looking for the king who's the king of kings, who's going to build a kingdom that goes beyond this world. It's not of this world. And since it's not of this world, he's going to rule with us outside of this world. That's a lot from verses 6 and 7. Okay, so some of you are like, bro, where is this at? Y'all got a different Bible than me? Let's go to verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Say mouth, say heart. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, all right? So faith is in your mouth, faith is in your heart, all right? This is going to mean something in a second. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this is what many of you, your grandma has is hanging over a toilet or something, okay? So, right? So if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, we've, most of us have heard that before. That's not a new one on us. We're like, brother, that's the only verse I knew from Romans 10, all right? So there's all kinds of other stuff in here, right? So he says, if you'll confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus raised, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Say justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So with your mouth and with your heart. So the question we have to ask ourselves that Paul is trying to unpack here is what is the cost of this kind of belief? So a belief that saves, right? Because if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So what is the cost of that type of faith that would be confessed in and believed in, right? And that's what we want to unpack. And, and Albert Barnes, this is a long quote, but I want to give it to you anyways, and I think we can handle it. I'll break it in half between the heart portion and the mouth portion because I want to help you understand what Paul's trying to communicate. Because when we say that it's with our words and with our heart, or, or in other words, with our, our, with our mouth and our heart, or in other words, with our words and with our feelings, Paul is trying to communicate something to us to help us understand the depth of the reality of Christ and what it should mean to us, okay? Y'all thought Romans 9 was a doozy, huh? So this is what he says. For with the heart, say heart, not with the understanding merely, but with such a faith as shall be sincere and shall influence the life. There can be no other genuine faith than what influences the whole mind, what stirs the emotions, what tells us to feel and sways us with a passion for him. In other words, if you're confessing it with your heart, it should go beyond what you think about him, and it should become something that you feel about him. Jesus should be someone you love, not with just your words, not with just your mind, but with your emotions. Here's a question I have for you. Are you emotional about Christ? Are you emotional about Jesus? Oh, the pipeline students are like, God, yes, absolutely. <laughs> But are you emotional about, does, is there a passion in you that when you worship, you're not just singing a song, but the revelation of what that song is saying, my failures, 
and my flaws, Lord, you've seen them all, but you, you don't just let me in, you call me friend. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Grace is giving you what you do not deserve. He didn't just make it to where we didn't have to go to hell. He made an opportunity for us to go to heaven. He didn't just make it to where we didn't have to burn. He made it to where we can experience his glory for all eternity. That should stoke a fire in us. A passion that reaches into our heart and creates a present reality in the, in the present that the God of all creation knows your name. With words, he put the sun, moon, and stars into space and set the earth on its axis. And he did so knowing the number of hair on your head. Could he be distant from his creation? He could, but every hair on your head is numbered. Which for the record, doesn't just mean that he knows the numbers of, like, he doesn't just look at your head and go, you have 426,523 hairs on your head. For some of you, that might be an easier equation, but nonetheless, we're here. So, right? He doesn't know the total number, but listen to me. When that one hair falls out in the shower, he knows that that was number 426,512. He intimately knows you. The God of all creation knows you better than you know you and loves you despite all the things you wish you could hide from him. What a passionate reality. It should go to our heart, but it should go past our heart. It should be a confession with our mouth. Let's go to what Albert Barnes says about that. With the mouth, confession is made. That is, confession or profession, is so made as to obtain salvation, right? So we're confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart. He who, in all appropriate ways, confesses his attachment to Christ shall be saved. In other words, the revelation comes from God, a prompting on your heart, a response out of faith, right? And then you connect with your heart, you confess with your mouth. But this is what he says, an attachment to Christ shall be saved. This profession is to be made in all the proper ways of religious duty. By an avowal of our sentiments, so our feelings, by declaring on all proper occasions our belief of the truth, and by an unwavering adherence to them in all persecutions, oppositions, and trials. I'm going to say that again. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're going through, you're still declaring the same reality. And how many of us, when things go bad, we stop posting all on Instagram about how good God is? When things are good, God's so good. Look at this sunset, right? French fries and a milkshake, let's go. Right? Like, when things are going good, God's getting all the glory. But when things go bad, and what he's saying is, even in oppositions, even in trials, I'm declaring that God, that Jesus is Lord of my life. Right? He keeps on going. He who declares his belief makes a profession. He who associates with Christian people does it. He who acts with them in a prayer meeting, in the sanctuary, and in deeds of benevolence 
does it, talking about declares that they belong to Jesus. He who is baptized and commemorates the death of the Lord Jesus through communion does it. He who leads a humble, prayerful, spiritual life does it. Talking about, again, putting, professing with their mouth. In other words, what Paul is communicating to and what Albert Barnes is highlighting for us is that confessing with your mouth goes far beyond your words. He's saying every time you take communion, you're confessing with your mouth. When you were baptized, you were confessing with your mouth. When you live a prayer life, when you come to church and you worship with everyone else, you're confessing with your mouth. When you make, whenever you're in oppositions and in trials and things aren't going your way, but you still let Jesus be Lord, you're confessing with your mouth. In other words, the confession goes far beyond just telling people you're a Christian. Your confession goes into how you live your life as a Christian. That everything in your life confesses with your mouth. And so confessing with your mouth. I want you to think for a second as confessing with your mouth. So again, let's go to Romans 10. Uh, was at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's talk about if you confess with your mouth. And let's really highlight what Paul is trying to say here. In other words, not if you would use your words. But if you would let every part of your being declare to the world around you that Jesus is the Lord of your life you're saved. The problem is that is a very costly declaration. That Jesus is the Lord of my life. It's easy to say with your words, it is very difficult to live out with your actions. Because how many guys know there's part of me that still wants to do something else that doesn't declare Jesus is the Lord of my life. Right? He finishes this out. He shows his regard, the person that is confessing with their mouth, shows his regard to the precepts and example of Christ Jesus. His regard for them more than for the pride and pomp and allurements of the world. In other words, he wants Christ more than he wants anything else the world has to offer. All these things are included in the confession with our mouth. Matthew Henry says it like this. Though it was great. He said, no faith is justifying So we're justified by faith, just so we're catching up, right? We're justified by faith. In other words, we're made righteous by faith, right? No faith is justifying, which is not powerful in sanctifying the heart, right? And so it's not justifying if it's not powerful in sanctifying the heart, making us like Christ, and regulating all its affections by the love of Christ, right? We must devote and give up to God our souls and our bodies. Our souls in believing with the heart and our bodies in confessing with the mouth. The believer shall never have cause to repent his confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the believer shall never have a reason to turn away from the fact that Jesus is the Lord of their life. Of such faith, no sinner shall be ashamed before God. And he ought to glory in it before men, again, highlighting what they're saying. In other words, when you stand before sinful people, you should not cower away from your faith. And when you stand in the midst of persecution, you should scream all the louder that Jesus is Lord. Right? Let's go back to it. Verses 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's highlight for a, section, uh, for a second 
that, those two everyone. So in the verse 11 and in verse 13, it says everyone, right? So let's make a distinction for just a moment, just for clarity's sake. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is a present reality that everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. The belief in Jesus comes from the prompting of Jesus on their heart. Right? We saw that in Romans 9. Again, Romans 10 is a continuation of Romans 9. So if someone believes that Jesus right, is Lord, it is because God prompted them to believe that Jesus is Lord. We saw that last month. We're highlighting it again. But just to be clear, verses 12 is making the distinction or highlighting what verses 11 and 13 are trying to say. Right? So what does verse 12 say? There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So the everyone that he's saying doesn't literally mean every single person on the earth. It's more removing the distinction between these two different people groups. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you believe you can be saved. That's what he's saying. Some people read that and go, look, all you have to do is just say these words. And if you say these words, you're going to heaven. That's not quite what Romans 10, 11, and 13 mean. It's more of removing the distinction. Okay. Verse 14. <clears throat> How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? All right. So Paul is talking, saying, how can they call on him, Jesus, if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they've been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right. So y'all want to see me with my shoes off? How beautiful are the feet. <laughs> I promise it ain't nothing it ain't nothing you want to see. All right, so how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. So what do we have? We have Paul communicating in verses 14 through 17, right? Is that the necessity for evangelism is key. In particular, what Paul is saying is that we have to take it to Jews and Gentiles. Again, if you remember what's going on during this time frame, there's this war. God is only for the Jews or the, the good news of the kingdom of God is only for the Jews. And Paul is saying it's not only for the Jews, it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's saying, so I have to go to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul is a Jew. Paul is talking about Jewish culture to Jewish people, right? And he's saying, I have to go. All of us who have been called have to take this message not just to the Jews. We have to take it to the Gentiles because God has a desire to save them as well, right? And that's when he goes into how will they call they who is they, Gentiles. How will they, the Gentiles, call on him if they have not heard of him or they haven't believed? And how would they believe if they haven't heard? So again, what Paul is trying to say to the Jews is if you keep this good news to yourself, God doesn't save the people that he also wants to go after, right? Now, in our current church model, that doesn't make a lot of sense for us, so let me help make, maybe make this a little more palatable and something that we could understand it as. We got to get outside of our four walls and thinking that the people that God has sent here are the only people that matter when there's people that are going to hell out there and we need to take our faith and believe in it enough that when we go to work tomorrow, it's still something we wear on our chest. Because how can they believe if they haven't heard? You go, well, you don't understand. My job has limitations. Sure, okay, yeah, I believe that it does. And I'm not telling you to go get fired tomorrow because I'm not paying your bills if you do, all right? 
What I am telling you is there are opportunities every single day for you to take the reality of who God is to you and put it in front of someone else. And how, listen, if the, what does it say? If you confess with the mouth, believe in your heart, you can be saved. Well, then that's what 14 is saying. But how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if someone doesn't preach? And again, preach isn't staying on the platform and preach. Preach is how are they going to hear if no one opens their mouth? In other words, Paul is saying, how then in his world, Jews in our world, or in Gentiles in our world, lost people, how are lost people going to know that Jesus is the solution to their problems if when you go through problems and Jesus gets you through it, you don't tell anyone about it? We have a declaration to share our testimony and our story of who Jesus is to us with the world around us. Because how are they going to believe if they have not heard? And how are they going to hear if someone doesn't open their mouth? And how are they going to open their mouth if they haven't been sent? And I'm telling you right now, you have been sent. Go. So we have this responsibility to bring this good news to people. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. He's not talking about pretty feet pictures. He's not talking about like you have beautiful toes. All right. He's, he's talking about, he's in this term that we, doesn't make a lot of sense to us in 2022. He's talking about how beautiful is it. I want you to think for a second that you're in battle, right? So go back to like a medieval century for a second. I want you to think you're in battle, you've requested help, and you're about to die because the armies that are in front of you are way bigger than the number of people you have with you right now. You've got you and Hayden. Hayden, just stand up for I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's you and Hayden and Jade. So it's me, Hayden, and Jade. Yep, Jade, wait for a second. All right, so this, it's the three of us against a thousand people, and we got to fend them off. How much confidence do you have in us? Don't, no, don't do that. None. The answer is none. Some of you are like, no, nah, man, I really, no, the answer is none, right? And we sent word to the town next to us that we need help. We need somebody to come help us or we're going to die. And we know that the town next to us has 20,000 troops they could send our way. And here we are at the moment where we feel like it's almost too late. And all of a sudden, over the hill, we see the messenger running back to come tell us the troops are coming. How beautiful it would be to see someone running our way. To see their feet moving in our direction to declare to us, that help has arrived. How beautiful are the feet of those that carry the good news. That when you couldn't defeat your enemy and it felt like it might be too late, here comes someone to tell you that it doesn't matter how bad you messed up, it doesn't matter what you've gone through, God doesn't care how far to the depth of hell you feel like you've gotten He's still coming after you, and he's going to save you, and the gospel is real for you, and you can believe in him, and he will open your eyes, and you put your faith in what he did on the cross, and he will reveal to you the reality that he is king of kings and lord of lords for your life. In other words, 
It is beautiful, listen to me, it is beautiful to every person you bring the gospel to because you don't know who's at their last moment of hope. And it may just be you that's running over the metaphorical hill to bring the good news to those that are about to lose everything in their life, lose hope, lose peace, lose the belief that Jesus could save them. And you come swooping in and you tell them your story about what Jesus did for you. And because Jesus did it for you, they start to gain a hope that Jesus could do it for them. And when they gain that hope, they're believing because they've heard and they've heard because someone preached or told them the good news. And that's why it's beautiful that someone would bring about the very gospel, the good news that we have. Let's go to verse 18. In verse seven, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We've all heard that before. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Who is they? Jews, all right? So put, again, Paul's talking. He says, have they, have they not heard? Right? Indeed, they have. So their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And then he goes in verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And so Paul is bringing this full circle back to the same conversation he started with at the beginning. All right, as we get ready to wrap up for tonight. Paul brings it full circle back to the conversation he had at the beginning. Does anybody remember the conversation at the beginning? What was it? There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jesus came for all. Right? So what does he do? Paul, like a gangster, uses the Old Testament to show Jews that God had already spoken to them about the fact that they wouldn't be the only ones. Paul's like that dude, man. Some of y'all are like, this is real nerdy. Yes, this is because Paul's like, man. Anyways, all right. A wizard with words. All right. But I ask, look at verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? That's a sarcastic question, by the way. It's like, brother, did y'all not get it? Right? What does he say? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Who is you? The nation of Israel. Jews. I will make you, Jews, jealous of those who are not a nation. Who is not a nation? Gentiles. With a foolish nation. Who is a foolish nation? Gentiles. I will make you angry. Who is you? Jews. So again, because you, Jews, right, will be jealous. So the Jews will be jealous of the Gentiles because I will take the Gentiles and I will make you angry. Well, what is he making them angry about? The fact that they thought they were the only ones getting in. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus opening up to everybody. Right? Moses said that. Old Testament. Then, 20, verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Who are those? Gentiles that did not seek me. In other words, listen, none of us woke up one day and was like, you know what? I just think I need Jesus. You being saved wasn't your idea. God came after you. Go back to the revelation. The fact that you even know you need God is a revelation from God, right? So what does he say? I have been found by those Gentiles who did not seek me. 
I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, which again solidifies Romans 9, that it wasn't you that went looking for God, it was God went looking for you. So God put laser, laser precision on your heart, came after you, penetrated through your walls of stone cold heartedness and everything in you that says that you needed to be your own God, you needed to be your own savior. He penetrated through that wall, got to your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh, Isaiah says. And as he penetrated that thing, he revealed to you the fact that you've needed him all along and then gave you the answer, who is Jesus? And that he was saying, I've been found by those who didn't seek me. The Jews were seeking because they were his people. The Gentiles weren't, but he still came after us. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Gentiles, they didn't ask for God, but God came after them because he loves you. Listen to me. We are all Gentiles in here. Every single one of us don't deserve his grace, but the fact that he's come after us, we didn't ask for it. We didn't go looking for it. He came looking for us. This should stoke a passion and a burning in our hearts that we would know him because there's no reason we should have him. There's no reason that we should know him, but Jesus came looking for us. You've done nothing to receive this, and he came after you. There's no right to this. You haven't done good works. You haven't checked the right boxes that God would have a desire for you. He strictly has a desire for you so that he would get the glory out of your life and you knowing him. Your yes to knowing him is a resounding echo through all of creation that God is God. And him having your heart is just one more way of him showing the world it doesn't make sense who I am, but I don't live for the world. The world exists for me. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Those people would be Israel, Jews. Of Israel, he says, all day long, he says, time and time again, I continue to be gracious to a group of people who still do not understand who I am. And I don't think that that statement is reserved for just the Jewish people. And when I say the Jewish people, I don't mean modern Jewish people, as in a bloodline. I mean the nation of Israel as a whole, referencing an Old Testament idea. In other words, there's a nation who time after time after time showed and proved to me that they were not worthy of my love. They were not worthy of my affection. They were not worthy of my calling. They were not worthy to be my nation. They were not worthy to be my people. They time and time again, I kept my hand held out to them. Why? Because they are my people. Now listen to me. This is where I want you to see the marriage happen because the people, Jewish people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and Christians in the New Testament have the same message over and over and over again. God in his goodness has extended his hand of mercy to us. Christians in the New Testament is a spiritual representation of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So when Paul says that God has extended his hand to them, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, extending grace far beyond what they could deserve. He's also saying that in the New Testament, the Christians, the Jews and the Gentiles that believe in him, he's extending his hand over and over and over to a group of people that will continually mess up what they've done. And listen to me, if it were up to you to get it right, you would blow it every time. But it's not a works 
faith-based righteousness. It comes from faith. Faith in the fact that Jesus did for us, listen, what we could not do for ourselves. And that is the good news of what Jesus came to make available to us. Let's stand tonight. I invite you to close your eyes across this place. We're going to take just, we're going to take a couple minutes. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take a few minutes just to reflect. As we lean in on Romans 10 for just a second, His grace, faith, what He's done. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it, but he's made a way. He came after our hearts. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and we're going to, we're going to spend the next about five minutes and the altars are open. You can move around in the auditorium, but I want you just to let let the reality of who Jesus is go past your mind and into your heart. I want you, this, this might even be new for some of you, but I want you to ask Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to let you feel for him what you've thought about him. Jesus, let me experience an affection for you that stirs my heart, that prompts me. Let me have an emotional attachment to the reality of grace and that you've made me righteous when I could not make myself righteous. And then use your words to thank him, to love on him. We'll take about the next five minutes for a moment of reflection. If you need to come to the altar, if you need to kneel down, you need to go face the wall, you do that, and we'll come back together in a few.